Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. So um, thank you, Lulu. That was great. Thanks, Denise, for opening. And um, welcome to anybody who's new here. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. And um, so tonight's topic that I'm going to discuss is about our ideals that um, we ask God to mold our ideals. We let God mold our ideals and we ask him to give us the strength to live up to those ideals, to live in agreement with those ideals. And, um, but before I get started, I was asked um, by someone to share my, to share my photos. They said that they'd heard me reference them, but they've never seen them. So I'm gonna, I'll share my photos. Um, and, um, you know, the reason I like to share my pictures is um, because it's a visual demonstration, really, of what it looks like to have an experience with the miraculous. And that's why I share them. Um, you know, we really believe that the age of miracles is still among us, that miracles are not something that are like, you know, way back in the dark ages or way back only in, in the biblical times, but that those of us who have recovered know that this in fact is a miracle. What happens to us, what happened to me was a miracle. And I'm lucky because I get to wear my miracle. Like I get actually the, to, to have a visual of what a miracle looks like. That what happened to me internally, huge, huge. But you guys can't, until you listen and you know me and you talk to me, if you knew me from before, you wouldn't know that. But the pictures kind of like get people's attention, right? So this was me, um, my daughter's 21 now. So this was me 21 years ago when I had just given birth to her. And we were really happy and in love. And I had this new baby and I had been morbidly obese off and on most of my life. Some, you know, I had periods of where I got it under control and then periods where I was like really out of control. Just given birth and I thought, okay, I'm gonna get this pregnancy weight off. I've got this beautiful baby. I've got a happy marriage, happy everything. I won't need to eat the way I used to eat. But that didn't work. That wasn't, that wasn't a plan that worked for me um, because here I am, my daughter got older, I got bigger, right? Still happy, we're still in love. Still this lovely marriage, but it didn't, that didn't keep me from eating compulsively either. Um, and this was us, you know, through the years. Oftentimes, many pictures that I find are in restaurants, at tables, eating. Um, because when food is your master, food tells you what you like to do. And that's really what it was. Food was my master. And it told me how to feel like connection with my family. And so our connections, you know, I'm the mom, right? I'm the mom. So the mom sort of dictates how the family comes together. And this was how I came together with my family, over a table, always over a table. Um, you know, it continued through the years. In the red, I was having a party at my house that day. It definitely did not look like I was having a party. Could barely get a brush through my hair. My house was a mess. I was a mess. Um, you know, and, um, and then the picture next to me, I was on vacation. And I was actually smiling here. I was abstinent. I had been in the rooms of World Readers Anonymous. I was right on the cusp of picking up again though. 
like I hadn't picked up yet at this picture, um, but I picked up on this vacation and um, that smile wasn't on, right? Um, after that, this is um, me with my sisters, my sister-in-laws. And um, I often got through family events with a drink in my hand um, and food in my pockets because I felt like there was this wall separating me and the people that loved me. And basically it was a wall that I had built with resentment and anger and all the things that everybody ever did to me, um, real or imagined, I, I brought them with me. Every time I went to an event, those things were right there with me too. And, um, and these people loved me. Like I have a loud, annoying, in everybody's business kind of family just like me opinionated we're in each other's space say things sometimes inappropriate um but they love me underneath it all is a lot of love and I just couldn't feel it couldn't feel it I was in bondage to myself this was me with my son he's 15 now um I I this picture I think is important because I can see my hands are barely getting around him because the size of my body, it was so difficult to hold this baby. And if you look at him, he's so little, he's already planning how he's getting out of my hands because he was so active. So I couldn't keep up with him because I couldn't keep up with him and I couldn't hold him. And that was crushing. That was just crushing. Um, um, these are two side-by-side -side photos. The picture of me and the leopard, I was definitely, I was over 300 pounds. It was at the worst point. Again, there's my husband holding him. Um, I could not keep up with this kid and it, it devastating. And this is me recovered. This was, um, he was about 12 there. Uh, he's 15 now. Maybe he was 12 or 11, I think 11. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say there's, there's the demonstration of what happened, right? Um, and so this picture in the gray is someone had asked me specifically, they wanted to see this photo. This picture here, I'm still clearly overweight, right? I still, I had plenty of weight to go, but I was recovered. And what was really significant about that particular event was, um, I was making this big elaborate party for my daughter's bas mitzvah, paying a ton of money for food and alcohol, a room for dessert at the end of the affair. And none of it called my name. Like I could care less about the food or the alcohol, but better than that was that wall that separated me between the people who loved me was gone. And I remembered feeling such incredible love and freedom and connection at that event that even though I'm still clearly overweight, like I knew the light had come on in my eyes. I, I felt so different. I was recovered there. My body hadn't caught up yet, but I actually felt amazing in that trust. I remembered I danced. I felt good in my skin. I knew I still had weight to lose, but it didn't matter anymore. You know, and this was a picture from last summer, me and my mom together, just to kind of show. Um, oh, and I'm wearing the same pants right now. <laughs> I just noticed I have the same pants on. Um, 
So, uh, and this is me, you know, this is me. Um, I always say like every one of those dresses fits me. I just know it. I go in the closet, pull them out. Um, I no longer have to worry about what fits and what won't fit, you know? Um, and to kind of show that, this was this past fall, I pulled out the out of the closet and wore one of those dresses again, you know? Um, and, uh, and this is a side-by-side -side of me and my family, you know, just to show um, that this thing is real, you know, that, that we recover. Um, and again, here's two side-by-side, -side, uh, my husband and myself, like many years apart. Um, we got older. I got blonder. I don't know how that happens, but somehow miracles. Um, anyway, so those are my pictures. And um, what does that have to do with ideals? Well, you know, those pictures um, I know are because I have formed this relationship with God where now I'm going to get into the topic where I have welcomed God to mold my ideals. And I ask God to give me the strength to live in agreement with those ideals. The transformation that you see is not a result of a diet. It's not, it's a food plan. By the way, I've, I've known this food plan has been effective for many years, but I can't do it on my own power. I know exactly what I can and cannot eat. Can't do it on my own power. Um, I need God. I need a relationship with their creator in order to live in agreement with the food plan that I know is good for me. So tonight's topic, I'm gonna to talk about our ideals. And the big book, I was looking to see where the link was. I'm gonna to have to, I'm gonna put it on, um, on our page on um, the Recovery Jam website. Um, because I've got a set of ideals here that um, really comes right out of the big book. These are not my ideals. These are the ideals that I have kind of picked through the book and saw um, what they were. And I'll go through them and I'll tell you the page numbers that they're on so that you can have it for yourself. Um, but I know I'm going to get asked afterwards, what, what were they again? And can you share them? And absolutely, I will share them. Um, Okay, so what are ideals anyway? What does that even mean, ideals? And you know, when I when I see ideals, I think, well, doesn't that have something to do with perfection? Like if something is the ideal, isn't that perfection? Isn't that impossible? Isn't that unattainable? And are we really supposed to be perfect? Like, is that our goal to be perfect? Isn't perfectionism a flaw? Like I hear that, you know, I've, I'm a perfectionist. Um, that's a flaw. You know, um, page 68 in the AA 12 and 12, it answers this question. It says, many will at once ask, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? So this is talking about step six. Why? That is perfection. This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Only step one will be made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol can be practiced with absolute perfection. The remaining 11 steps state perfect ideals. So when people say, as far as their food is concerned, 
well, it's progress, not perfection. No, that's not what they're talking about here. That if we really take step one, our food plan is we follow our abstinent plan perfectly. Like news alert, that is what we do, right? Um, but this idea about perfect ideals, right? Is the goals towards which we look and the measuring sticks by which we estimate our progress. So step one is not where we estimate our progress. Step one is take it entirely. It's the remaining 11 steps that we're gonna be making progress. The only urgent is that we make a beginning and keep trying. So in all the rest of those 11 steps, what we have to do is we've got to keep on trying. I say it's like, if there's this perfect bullseye and I know I'm not going to make it, but my hope is to, is to strive, is to strive to make it. And each time I strive, I get closer and closer, right? I get closer and closer. And so while I don't always live in agreement with my ideals, that's the target I aim for. I am imperfect but I do seek perfection, right? That's what it means to seek God, to seek God. So I am directed to grow along spiritual lines. In the doctor's opinion, page XVIII, it says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So, you know, the doctor's opinion certainly um, has a lot to say about food and alcohol and the allergy and no doubt that's super important information. But there's a lot more to this chapter or really this pre-chapter in the doctor's opinion, I also found out that food was never my real problem. That was never my problem at all. My actual problem was a problem I had with living. I had ideals that were grounded in me. That's what my living problem was. You know, I had a personality disorder, really. You know, and, and like I say, like, what? Wait, you don't? You don't have a personality disorder? Well, we're all here because, you know, if we agree that we're here for this purpose, it's because we need a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, right? From compulsive eating. So I have a personality that brings me to ruin. My personality on its own ruins me. I needed my life to be recreated. I needed my ideals to be grounded in something that's bigger than me. Right. You know, so that's really, that's like the first thing. Um, I need ideals that are grounded in God. Right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek ideals that are grounded in God, not in me. Um, in Bill's story, you know, when Ebby comes and Bill sees the evidence of someone who's got ideals grounded in something bigger than himself. It says, I saw that my friend 
was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped new soil. What does that mean when your roots grasp new soil? Well, what I think is that my roots are the things that keep me in place. They support me, they nourish me. That's the job of the roots. And my old soil was soil that was polluted and corrupted. It wasn't healthy soil. My soil, you know, was feeding my roots and they were being fed by fear, by selfishness, by getting what I wanted, by operating on how I felt. That's what my roots were grounded in. I'm gonna do the things because I feel a certain way. My emotions dictated my actions. And what's my new soil? What's the new soil that we get? The new soil is soil that's actually really able to support me. Because remember, those, those, that soil couldn't even support me. My loving creator, right, is what my new soil is. It's God. My soil is now God. It's a new set of spiritual principles. And there's a solution on page 19 through 20. It says, of necessity, there will have to be discussions of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would so much as please us as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Okay, so now we're getting some, some like a list going of what our ideals are. Here I am. My ideal is an ex-problem drinker. One, I avoid controversy. Steer clear of controversy. Two, I'm not contentious or argumentative. Three, tolerant of others' shortcomings. Four, respectful of others' viewpoints and opinions. Five, useful to others. And six, constantly thinking of how we can help meet their needs. So what does that mean for us? Well, if I avoid controversy, I don't jump in the middle of political debates. It's not my scene, not what I do. I don't get into heated arguments at the workplace. I try to avoid drama at my job, drama in family dynamics. I'm not jumping on the bandwagon when people have disputes. You know, people like, get all these like ideas, whether it's like about someone else's food plan or about someone else's way of doing a 10 step or someone else's, any of that. I'm not 
getting in the middle of anything, right? Um, I seek to be a peacemaker. That's my job, to make peace. I let the rumor die with me. That's what I'm told here. If I'm really living in agreement with that, my ideals, with the ideals grounded in God, then rumors die with me. You know, um, when family members are fired up over something, and like I said before, I'm a, I'm a part of a big opinionated family, right? I have to stay quiet or positive. And man, is that hard. Like, remember, I'm not going to tell you that I do this perfectly, but I'm striving. I'm striving. This is my target. You know, um, the people I love are imperfect. They make mistakes. And what I found out for me is I've got, I'm, I've got this great analytical eagle eye. I see people's mistakes like neon signs, like with big arrows, right? Basically, it's a big arrow saying like, mistake here, right? Um, and, you know, I feel like those neon signs are just yelling to me, point it out, point it out, tell them, tell them, tell them, tell the people around them, um, talk about it, try to change it, you know, but that's clearly not tolerant, you know, um, and it's not respectful of anybody's shortcomings. You know, why can't I talk about my mother-in-law? with my husband, like, why can't I do that, right? Um, when he tells me something that, that his mom said that bothered him, right? Why can't I add some more into this discussion? You know, well, it's not respectful, right? That's why. And um, it's not respectful of her views and of her perspective, and it's not useful. It's not useful to her or my husband. You know, it's actually much kinder towards him to stay quiet. And I find that, especially with people that I love a great deal when they're upset over someone, I wanna get in there. Because what I found is that when my ideals are grounded in me, I seek connection at the expense of others. So nothing makes me feel more quickly connected to the people I love as a common enemy, right? As like having a common, like, oh, they made me so mad too. And now I feel really close to that person, but it's cheap intimacy. It's not real intimacy, it's fake. And, um, and I think, you know, in a family, especially, if I'm living in agreement with God's ideals. I think about this God, right? And I let God mold my ideals. I believe in a God that wants sons and mothers and sisters and brothers and daughters and neighbors to love one another. That's the God I believe in. I believe in a God that loves peace. And so if I'm not helping peace in the relationship, then I'm not being helped. You know, I'm not living in agreement with God's will for me. When my ideals are grounded in myself, 
then I use those moments to trash talk family members, right? I use that. Um, and, um, you know, at work, I have to do the same thing. I have to steer clear of pointing out to colleagues how lousy my administration is, right? Because it's really not helpful to the institution that we're working in. It's not helpful to the building to, to, to attack the morale of the people I work with. You know, in the moment, it feels like we're close, but overall, it actually makes us weaker. It weakens us as a staff. Um, and, and it pollutes the workplace. And rather than criticize, I'm to look for how I can be helpful and useful. And what strikes me is the use of the word constantly, like constantly. So not occasionally and not even frequently, but constantly, you know, I'm supposed to be helping others, more useful to others. We're not promised more leisure time or time to pursue our interests and desires. My ideals can't be shaped around me and just my desires. So now let's look and see what other characteristics help shape our ideals. You know, in Dr. Bob's Nightmare on page 180, it says, it is a most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. My health is good and I have regained my self-respect and the respect Wait, oh no. <laughs> okay. And the respect of my colleagues. My home life is ideal and my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. So what does Dr. Bob have to offer that an ideal? Well, if I look at what attracted him and his wife to the people in the Oxford group, we can learn something about what he saw as ideal. And it says here at the time of the beer experiment. So here's where he's trying to like figure out if he can drink with some control, with some boundaries. I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health and happiness. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment with which I could never do. And they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared to be very healthy. More than these attributes, they seemed to be happy. So it was clear, what did he seek there? One, poise, health, happiness, freedom from embarrassment, at ease on all occasions. So these are the byproducts of living in agreement with God's will. And these are some more of the ideals that we seek. Poise. If we have poise, it means that we're comfortable in our own skin. You know, and I'd say like people who have poise, they're not afraid of making mistakes. They learn from their mistakes. They don't get flustered by that as much. They apologize if necessary and they move forward, right? Um, they look people in the eye. They exhibit humility and confidence. They can hold their head up. They're not cocky. They're not arrogant. 
a poised person doesn't lose their pool. They're patient. I say like someone who has poise, I see people like this that have incredible poise. They're lifelong learners. They just continue to grow. They accept new ideas. They accept new perspectives. So when I'm creating my ideals, right? I seek to live with poise. I wanna have ideals that help me remain poised. And it makes me think of the women and men I meet in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. You know, the ones, the ones that have done such a good job for me carrying the message. They drew me in because like Ebby, they were bright eyed, they were quiet, they were sane. They weren't evangelists, they weren't reformers, they weren't screaming at me. They were calm. They just had a good way about them. Um, after our fifth step two, we begin to get some of the qualities that a poised, that a poised person has. And I can eagerly recognize, easily recognize when I'm not exhibiting poise. You know, sometimes come downstairs in the morning, happens for me. And there's like, I don't know, whoever went to bed last in my house thought it was okay to leave their mess, leave their dishes, leave their stuff. And I come down and clearly like I start my meditation. I start my morning off with prayer, meditation, feeling all like Zen and chill and aligned. I'm like, I'm going to go carry out God's will. And I walk downstairs and the dishes are in the sink, right? From, from, from last night. And I'm like, you know, not poised. I'm not poised. Um, I don't respond in a quiet, same way. I definitely act like a reformer. Like I'm going to reform everybody in this house and I lose my cool. It's not a pretty moment. And by the way, it never gives me the thing that I was actually seeking in the first place, which in this case for me is a calm and happy home. Like I think, you know, a clean kitchen is gonna give me calmness in my home. It's gonna make me feel calm. But if I just threw a temper tantrum at 6 a.m. in the morning, ain't nobody calm in this house, right? Nobody's calm in this house. So, um, you know, when you throw a temper tantrum and you bang pots to wake people up in the morning and you put them away grumbling and you're carrying on, you're not, I'm not living in agreement with my ideals as mom and wife. I'm just not, you know? Um, and generally for me, when I behave that way in the morning, I've got a great husband who's not afraid to remind me. Like, um, yeah, don't, he's like, mm, don't do that. Uh-uh, he's like, please don't start the day like that. And, um, and I have to make an amend, right? He knows I've got a process. Sometimes he says to me, could you stop? He said it to me once, could you stop right now so you don't have to apologize 10 minutes from now? And I'm like, I oh, got it, got it. And for me, that's God molding my ideals through the mouth of my husband, right? Um, in page 69 and how it works, we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, right? Usually the ideals start coming in when we start talking about our sex ideals. And here it says, we all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. 
Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom did we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We've got this all down on paper and looked at it. So, okay, we treat sex like any other problem. So basically, I'm going to treat any other problem like this. So according to my ideal, I can't be selfish. I have to think of others first. Two, I can't be dishonest. I have to be truthful. And I can't be inconsiderate, right? Basically, I gotta be considerate. I gotta think of other people. We review the way we behave and your new ideal, my new ideal, can't arouse jealousy. So what does that mean? If I'm not arousing jealousy, I'm not bragging or discussing things that you know another person is longing for. So if you've got someone in your life and you know that they're longing for something, it's not an agreement with your ideal to talk endlessly about it, to kind of like pour a little salt in the wounds of what they don't have. We're compassionate, right? We're supposed to show compassion. You know, we're not supposed to make people suspicious, encourage people, you know, to not trust me. That's making them suspicious. Basically being untrustworthy, dishonest, two-faced, right? We're not supposed to be that, you know? And I would say like a great way to know is um, people are suspicious of people who talk about other people, right? So if you're sharing lots of juicy tidbits about someone to another person, by the way, you've just aroused suspicion in the person you're speaking to. I know for me, if somebody is busy gossiping with me, I'm pretty certain they might be gossiping about me, right? So anytime we gossip, we're arousing suspicion. Um, you know, I laugh whenever I read this, I think, I think about like when, when I was working on these things and I thought, oh my God, I thought the hardest thing I was ever gonna have to do was to put down the chocolate. Putting down gossip a million times harder, a million times harder. Right? It's it's like the forever thing. And remember, step one is the one we do perfectly. We put down the food. And then we practice these things as best we can. Um, three, you know, this causing bitterness. I'm not to cause bitterness, making people angry and disappointed because they're treated unfairly. Do not cause bitterness. We should encourage delight and warmth in people, right? So what does it mean when I cause bitterness? Well, I make people feel miserable in my presence. That's making people bitter. Um, so in my relationships, I'm to be compassionate, honest, and fair. And page 69, paragraph two says, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? So in every relationship, not just our sex relationship, but our relationships as moms or spouses, as wives, employees, as colleagues, as neighbors, as sponsors, 
I cannot be selfish. And not in our way of life, you know, for us, um, selfishness isn't just wanting more than our fair share in that old sense of the word. Like sometimes I'm like, I'm not being selfish. You know, I'm really being quite giving. But basically for us, selfish also means like wanting others to follow my script, having a plan for people and expecting that they're going to follow it is selfish. Even if I believe that their plan, that my plan for them is great, it's still selfish. You know, when I say things like they should, dot, 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 that's being selfish, right? That's having a plan for other people. You know, um, you know, another way that we're selfish is not seeing others' point of view, believing that my perspective is a fact. And what I found is that everybody has a perspective and everybody thinks that their perspective is the facts, right? Everybody has their own specific way of looking at things and everybody thinks that their way of looking at things is the ultimate truth. And I have to be respectful that just because I have a perspective does not mean that it's true. Might be true what I think for me, but not for anybody else. You know, wanting things my way, that's selfish. Wanting special treatment, wanting to be treated different, better, special. Being too concerned with me. You know, even worried about what others are thinking about me. That's selfish. That's thinking about me and wanting to look good or be liked. These are all ways that we demonstrate selfishness, that I demonstrate selfishness. So we ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. And remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly nor selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. And so I see it now that my sex powers, right, are all the attractive powers and talents and gifts that are God-given. You know, and so there's no like credit. Sometimes we're just naturally good at certain things. And I would say those are the gifts that we've been given. You know, um, we have some natural skills and abilities, whether they're like, some people are artistic, some people are like, you know, better at, at writing, some people are better at like speaking, some people, um, or, you know, have, have various gifts and talents, and many of them are God-given. Anything that makes us special is God-given and therefore good, and not to be used lightly or selfishly. God will use these gifts, and we must allow him to mold us. And I think one of the most amazing things is how, you know, when so many of my troubling characteristics and I see it happen for other people, become reshaped and turned into things that are beneficial if, if they're put to good use. You know, in step three, when we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, you know, um, we start, we say to God, basically here, take, you know, take me, I want what you want. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to think what you want me to be, you know, think. And then in step seven, we give him everything, good and bad. 
And we say like, you do with the good and bad, what you, what you will have to do with the good and bad. And what I found is that God took some of my characteristics that weren't so great and he fine-tuned them. He tweaked them. He made them a little bit better and, and used them, right? And some oof, were just discarded and pushed aside and moved away. And um, in, in page 69 in the third paragraph, it says, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we've done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. So, you know, at this point, when we're really working on these ideals, the food is down, right? Remember that was step one um, that we decided that we're gonna do that part perfectly, right? We're gonna, we're gonna let go of the food perfectly as we embark on this path. And by the time we're forming our ideals, it's been down for a good chunk of time usually. We have a clear idea of our defects or at least what our grosser handicaps are. We begin to feel more and more God-directed. And around this time, we start getting more and more aware of when we're not living in agreement with our moral code. You know, this is God shaping my ideals. And nobody should specifically tell you what your ideals are, but we know them. You know what your ideals are. It's always been there. For me, it's always been there. It's that quiet voice inside. And it's this thing that I've always heard. I just shushed it. I just went shh, shh for so long. You know, I have to say, um, my second graders have it. I see it. They have it too. You know, we call it the conscience, right? We call it that little thing inside. And, you know, I see it because they give it away. Like I can see it on a seven and eight year old. They do something wrong and they, their face, they change their expression. They're like looking over their shoulder. I can normally tell that someone is doing something naughty from across the room because they start doing this. They start looking around. They got that guilty look on their face. And, um, we get that when we know that we're doing something that's not right. And it's not always because we fear the consequences. You know, I don't always do the right thing because I'm afraid of what's gonna happen if I do the wrong thing. But I believe it's the quiet voice of God inside. It's just that thing inside me. We call it our conscience. Now everyone's is different. But whatever yours turns out to be, you got to be willing to grow towards it, right? When you get an indication that you're not living in agreement with your ideals, you've got to grow towards it and not run from it. And, and when you live outside your ideals, you make amends. Not just say you're sorry, but amend the behavior, fix it, do it differently. And remember that being willing doesn't mean wanting but it means you're going to do it anyway. You know, um, I would say like, you know, we, we don't um, get involved in hysterical thinking. You know, on page 70, it says that we let God be the final judge. 
Some people are fanatical and others are loose and we avoid hysterical thinking or advice. We treat all of our problems this way. And that to me, that's amazing news. You really don't need to have a different set of directions for different problems. We have a problem. We ask God what to do. We seek counsel with another person, but we let God be the final judge and not people. And this tells me that I don't pass judgment on others either. That's God's job. What do I do? I avoid hysterical thinking or hysterical advice, receiving it and giving it to. So what happens when you fall short of your chosen ideal and you stumble, right? Does it mean you're going to get drunk? Some people say, yeah, that means it, but it's only half truth. It depends on us and on our motives. If we're sorry for what we've done and we have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we're going to be forgiven and we all have learned our lesson. If we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing these facts are our, our experience. So if we make a mistake, if I make a mistake, if I'm not living according to my God-molded ideals, am I going to automatically go back to eating? I have to check my motives. Am I really sorry? Do I want to do better? Or am I hoping to get away with something? I can't deliberately hurt someone and stay sober even if I think they deserve it, right? Remember, I'm not the judge. I don't get to decide who deserves what. You know, so um, I have to tell the truth, right? I have to make amends. And I think like, if I plan on staying recovered and protected, I can't lie. And I have to take ownership for the things I do. You know, I, I love when Janet says, like, when I lie, it's like I put a do not enter sign on my forehead, telling God to keep out. And really, I think when I lie, what I'm saying to God is, mm -mm, don't you mold my ideals. I want, I want my roots kept in me. I don't want them grounded in you. I want to keep them in my soil. I want to get what I want to get. And I've seen the consequences of that. It doesn't go very well for me. Remember, my roots can't sustain me. In my own soil, I can't sustain me. You know, um, when I say to God, get out of my way, right? I'm manipulating the truth. Um, I'm basically telling God, I don't need your help. I got it. And I think about God for me is like the most skillful teacher with the perfect lesson plan. And it's differentiated. It's different for each and every one of us. And when I lie, I'm saying to God, I don't need to learn anything today. I got it. And so God, you know, allows me to decide this for myself. We call that free will. What I found out is that if I'm not willing to learn the lesson today, doesn't mean that lesson's going away. It means it's going to get harder. The lesson for me gets harder. The instruction doesn't go away. It just, it revisits again. And I learn it in a little more painful way. That just seems to be what happens. Um, you know, part of my ideal is too, is that I have to be free 
of anger. The grouch, it says on page 66, the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So there's a phrase I turn to a lot because it reminds me that as an ex-problem leader, I have a very unique set of directions. And it's different from the directions that normal people have. I can't defend and support my side and my position. In fact, I have to actually divorce, separate, disconnect, turn away, abandon, distance, split, detach, all those synonyms for divorce. Myself from that kind of thinking. I have to separate myself from the kind of thinking that I'm right. You know, um, Page 83 into action, it says, we should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. These are my ideals too. As God's people, we stand on our feet. So we don't crawl before anyone. And what this tells me is that I may be putting, part of my ideals is that I'm gonna be putting other people's needs ahead of my own, but ahead means my needs will still be considered just not first. I'm just not coming first. I, you know, I would say, like, I really believe that I'm a child of my creator. And I believe that it's disrespectful to God to be putting myself in a position where I am courting humiliation, pain, and abuse. We're not servile. We're not scraping. You know, we're of service to God. And he directs us who and how to help, but we're not at the beck and call of humans, right? I'm, I work for God, right? God's my employer. He puts people in my path that I'm supposed to be helpful to. And I don't believe that God relieved me of the bondage of food to be anyone's doormat. You know, my ideals have to have healthy boundaries. They've got to have them in there too. And those of us who've been people pleasers have actually not been as kind as we like to believe. I've been a people pleaser. Um, you know, that was like part of my deal. But <clears throat> my people pleasing wasn't really because I was concerned with the happiness of others and their well-being. Really, it was the thought that I didn't like someone else not having a good opinion of me. I was really more concerned with how they felt about me total self-centeredness. Wasn't like I really wanted them to be happy. I just didn't want them to be unhappy with me, right? So, um, and I would say, you know, I would make myself comfortable by making sure other people are happy. Like that was my deal. I'll be happy if you're happy. And I would say that's really unkind. It's actually unkind because when you make someone else responsible for your happiness, it's a burden. It's a burden you place on their back. So, you know, um, getting back to that, I know I'm like running out of time, but I want to say, you know, I want to talk about this idea. Come downstairs, kitchen's a mess, right? Remember, I threw this tantrum. Um, well, I'm supposed to be calm in my demeanor. I can discuss what it means to live in this family, what might need to be done. I may need to remind the people I live with about the obligations that they have. My children have obligations as part of a family. 
I need to be quiet, sane, basically poised in my delivery. And it's generally more effective than a, than a tantrum, right? And it may also mean that I have to follow through on consequences. It may also mean that I'm not pleasing everybody. People are going to be pouty and unhappy with me. You know, um, and I may also mean that sometimes natural consequences will have to happen as well. You know, um, I have to allow other people to feel discomfort. It's okay. It's not my job to make everybody comfortable in the world. Um, my function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Um, you know, one of my favorite things it says is love and tolerance of others is our code. It's my favorite line of all. Love and tolerance of others is my code, my code, my policy, my protocol, my standard operating procedure. If you notice our code, if we're living in agreement with God's ideals, it's not justice and it's not fairness, it's not right and it's not wrong. I need to have tolerance of others and I need to tolerate, which means build up my sensitivity to my own discomfort that might get stirred up when others do what they do. I've ceased fighting anything or anyone. I have to. You know, I don't fight. I don't get people back. I don't go back and forth with others. Um, you know, I would say that now that I'm living free from food, I can't expect perfection in the home just because I'm doing better. You know, I can't expect perfection in my worst workplace just because I'm doing better. I'm supposed to demonstrate patience, I'm supposed to be patient with other people as well as with myself. I remember that these are ideals. These are the perfect models. And although I strive for the target, I also miss the mark, right? So when I share about these ideals with you, and there was, you know, there's so many here that, um, that are really all in the big book um, about the way that we live. And I just, I wanna say real quick, I know we're like really out of time, but I'm gonna do a, I'll take my, my right and go over a little bit. I'll extend it a bit if that's okay. Um, that when God molds my ideals, I think about the molding. There's a little discomfort there. Because generally, when I'm growing towards something, it means I'm outgrowing something else. I feel the pressure of what I've outgrown, the little discomfort, little ache, little pain, little growing pains, right? And then we kind of gently, if we trust God, right? God not only gives me the knowledge of what his will is for me, he gives me the power to do it, to live in agreement with me. So I don't have to be afraid of the discomfort that I feel. I trust God. You know, part of being uncomfortable is part of being human. Nothing grows in the comfort zone, I was told, right? I allow myself to grow in that way. Um, and I trust God with it, knowing that um, anything that's difficult for me you know, now one day might be easy. And I think of anything today that's easy for me to do, even walking, right? Go back to being a baby. Hardest thing you had to do as a baby, right? Learning to talk, super hard. 
everything that's easy for me today at one time was difficult. And so I'm not, I'm not to be scared of doing things that might feel uncomfortable and difficult. And um, thanks, with that I'll pass. Over time, totally, I'm gonna stop. <laughs>